Father, we just come before you again in Jesus' name. And Lord, I just recall that I had forgotten to lift up Eileen and the pain that she's in today. Lord, would you touch her? Would you relieve her pain, Lord? And would you give her relief and comfort in your Holy Spirit? And Lord, as we look to your word, we ask that it would give us life and encouragement and exhortation. We thank you for the godly example of this Roman centurion. And Lord, insofar as he followed in the footsteps of Christ, we pray that we might learn from his example today. In Jesus' name, amen. When we come to Luke chapter 7, are we looking at just another story? I looked at this account this last week and I ran it over in my mind, I meditated on it, and I thought, well, is there anything unique or special or different about this story, or is it just one of so many other people that Jesus healed? You know, he healed hundreds of people during his earthly ministry. Why did the Holy Spirit put this account in our Bibles? Is there anything specifically that the Spirit of God is wanting to focus our minds on? And I think there is. Take a look at verse 9. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him, and turned and said to the crowd that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. He marveled. Imagine that. Jesus, the Son of God, was marveling at this man. Now, there's only one other time in our New Testament gospel accounts where Jesus marvels. It's in Mark chapter 6 and verse 6. And Jesus had come back to his hometown of Nazareth. And the Bible says there, he wondered, the same Greek word, he marveled or he wondered at their unbelief. So when it came to Israel, Jesus marveled at their unbelief. When it came to a Gentile, he marveled at his faith. Interesting. So what does it mean for him to marvel at something? It means that he, he wondered at it or he was astonished at it. He was amazed by it. it now, of course, we're talking about Jesus and his humanity. and his deity, he's not going to learn any new material. But in his humanity, Jesus marvels at this Gentile centurion who had such great faith. So we have the faith of a Gentile that Jesus has this positive assessment of. And then we have the unbelief of his own people, Israel, that he has a negative assessment of. And I think here we learn the kind of person that Jesus marveled at. And as we move through this passage, I want you to be asking yourself this question. If I lived during the time when Jesus walked the earth, would he marvel at me? Would there be anything about me for Jesus to marvel at? There are three things about this centurion that I think God wants us to focus in on. It's interesting that when you look at this account, you learn far more about the centurion than you do about Jesus. The centurion's kind of thrown into the spotlight. And there's all kinds of information that we learn about this man. His story's unique. And so I believe that the Holy Spirit is wanting us to learn from him. He's wanting us to learn about the kind of person that Jesus marveled at. Now, remember that Jesus had just finished this sermon in chapter 6. He was on a mountain... He chose his 12 apostles. He descended to a level place. And then he began to speak to them, starting in verse 20. And he told them that 
there was a great multitude there, but he spoke directly to his disciples. And he said to his disciples, you are blessed if you count me your treasure. Even though you may have very little in the way of this world, if I am your treasure, you are blessed. And then he goes on to tell them that they must love their enemies and do good to them. That they must refrain from judging other people. And then he winds up his entire discourse by telling them about the kind of person that's going to heaven. It's not simply the person that says, Lord, Lord, but it's the kind of person that obeys Jesus Christ as an evidence that he truly believes in Jesus as his Lord. Well, that brings us to chapter 7, verse 1. When he had completed all his discourse in the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum. Now, we learn from Mark chapter 1 that Capernaum was the hometown of Simon Peter. And it appears that Jesus had made Capernaum his base of operations. So he's sort of coming home. He's going back to Peter's hometown. And it's in this location that this story starts to unfold. And I want you to focus, first of all, on the centurion's great love in verses 2 through 5. Look at verse 2. And a centurion's slave, who was highly regarded by him, was sick and about to die. When he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. When they came to Jesus, they earnestly implored him, saying, He's worthy for you to grant this to him, for he loves our nation, and it was he who built us our synagogue. Now, first thing I want you to notice about this individual is that he was a centurion. The word centurion, at its root, has the same, uh, same word as century. We get our word 100 from it. So a centurion was a Roman military officer who was in charge of roughly 100 men. So to, in order to become a centurion, you had to prove yourself as a man of valor and a man of courage in battle. And you would be elevated and stationed above your other soldiers and they would be responsible to you. He would be sort of like a captain in the army today. And what I find interesting is that whenever you find centurions in the New Testament, usually there's a positive description of them. Like think of some. Acts chapter 10. Cornelius, the first Gentile to be saved. The Bible says that he feared God with his whole household that he gave Jewish alms constantly to, I mean, he gave alms to the Jewish people continually, that he was a man of devotion, and that he prayed to God night and day. Pretty positive description of a man, wouldn't you say? Or uh, in Acts chapter 21, there was another centurion that delivered the apostle Paul out of the mob. Were, the Jews were trying to lynch Paul, and this centurion saved his life and brought him out of their way so they couldn't do what they wanted to do. In Acts chapter 27, there was a centurion by the name of Julius who treated Paul with consideration and allowed his friends to minister to him and to care for him. So almost everywhere you look in the New Testament, there's this positive affirmation of centurions. What I find interesting about this one is it says he has a high regard for his slave. Now that was unusual in the day in which he lived. Because according to the Roman culture of the first century, slaves were treated like pieces of property, uh, like tools, like an axe or a plow. And if that slave started to benefit you, then you just discarded it and you got another one. In fact, it was almost expected that if your slave got sick to the point of death, 
or injured where he couldn't work anymore, then you could have him executed legally. You sort of discard him, go down and buy yourself another slave. This master was quite different, wasn't he? He highly regarded him. The word means that he prized him. And I, I think there might, the reason for that might lie in the fact that, uh, that centurions were not really allowed to marry. Uh, they had a very difficult life because they were constantly on the move. And the Roman government could send a centurion to any place at any time, and he would have to stay there for up to 20 years. So you can imagine a man being married and having children, then being sent off to Timbuktu for 20 years and his family never seeing him. And so they required that centurions be unmarried men. And so as an unmarried man, he would have a slave to assist him in his work. And so because he had no family of his own, oftentimes centurions would become very close to their servants, their slaves. It appears that's what's happened in this particular situation. He loves him. And no doubt he's tried everything he can to bring healing to his slave, it doesn't say that, but I'm assuming that he's already gone to the doctors to see what they can do for him. Here it says that his son, his uh, slave was sick to the point of death. And if you read over in Matthew chapter 8, verse 6, it says he was lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. So in Matthew, we learn what kind of a sickness he had. It's paralysis. Perhaps he was a paraplegic, couldn't use his arms or his legs. Pretty useless to someone, wouldn't you say, as a servant? He can't use his arms or legs. He's, he's useless to him. Nothing the doctors could do could help him. He's tried them. And so in a last moment, piece of, of, of uh, desperation, he turns to Jesus Christ. He's heard things about Jesus. He's heard of the miracles that Jesus has performed. He's heard of the healings that he's performed and the exorcisms and the demons that he's cast out. And instead of finding a gruff, stern, uncaring military officer, that's what I would expect when I think of a centurion, we find a compassionate and a loving and a caring individual. We're going to find a lot of unexpected things about the centurion. So he loved his slave. And the second group of people that he loved were the Jewish people, the Jewish nation. Look at verse 3. When he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. When they came to Jesus, they earnestly implored him, saying, He's worthy for you to grant this to him, for he loves our nation, and it was he who built us our synagogue. So here he needs some help. He's thinking, well, maybe this Jewish rabbi, this prophet, can do something for my slave. But I'm a Gentile. Jews have no dealings with Gentile. How am I going to get an audience with this Jewish rabbi? I know what I'll do. I'll ask some Jewish elders. They have some status within Israel. I'll ask them if they'll go to him. Maybe they'll have more clout with Jesus than I would have. And so... He gets them to do a favor for him. They, they go with a message to Jesus. And the thing that really interests me is that somehow he had developed this, this positive, loving relationship with himself and these Jewish elders. Why else would they go for him? Remember, Jews despised Gentiles. 
Jews would have nothing to do with Gentiles. They wouldn't talk to them. They wouldn't touch them. They wouldn't fellowship with them. But here we find these Jewish elders, which are high-ranking Jews, going on behalf of a Gentile to ask a favor for him. And in fact, they even say he's worthy for you to come and heal the slave. That's how highly they held him in esteem. So what, what transpired to cause this good, positive relationship to develop between a Gentile and these Jews? He's a military officer of Rome, which was the occupying force holding the Jews in subjection. And here's this one representing Rome, which they hated because it held them in subjection, and yet they loved this guy. Why was that? Well, verse 4. They earnestly implored him, saying, He's worthy for you to grant this to him, for he loves our nation, and we know he loves our nation, because it was he who built us our synagogue. How interesting. A Gentile building a synagogue for Jews. Now, anybody know anything about what the Roman religion consisted of back in the first century? Were they monotheistic or polytheistic? They're polytheistic. They had all kinds of god and gods and goddesses that they worshipped. But here was this Gentile military officer stationed in Palestine. So he had all kinds of dealings with Jews, being in that part of the world. And no doubt he had become disillusioned with the, the religion that he had grown up with. He looked around at the people that worshipped these gods and goddesses and looked at their lives and looked at their standard of morality, and he said, it's appalling. They're filled with lust and greed and covetousness and pride. And then he looked at the Jews that he was around, and he looked at their belief system of one true and living God, and he saw their standard of morality, which is way higher than the Romans, because it came to them directly from the law of Moses. And he was drawn to that. He was attracted to the religion of Israel. And so he, he developed this relationship with the Jewish people. He was probably a proselyte, or he was probably a God-fearer who attended the synagogue and was learning more and more about the Jewish faith. And at one point he decided that he wanted to build them a synagogue. Now what took place in a synagogue every Sabbath day? What was the high point? Yeah, it was the ex exposition of the law, the Old Testament scriptures. This was the place the Jews would go and learn about their own faith in Jehovah. And the law would be expounded. So for him to take his own money and pour it into building a synagogue, you would, you would have to assume that the propagation of the Jewish faith was very important to him. That the teaching of the law of Moses was something that he held as very high as a priority. So he loved his slave, he loved the Jewish people, and again we have this, this turn that we wouldn't expect. A Gentile, military, Roman officer who would take his own money. I wouldn't expect that officers would, would be wealthy men. So this may have meant that sacrificially he was using his own income to pour into the Jewish people so that they would have enough money to build themselves a synagogue. He loved his slave. He loved the Jewish people. That's the first thing we learn about him, his great love. Now, secondly, we learn about his great humility. Look at verse 6. 
Now Jesus started on his way with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you, but just say the word, and my servant will be healed. Now notice what the Jews said about him. He's worthy. What does he say about himself? I'm not worthy. He says it twice. I'm not worthy for you to come to me, and I'm not worthy to come to you. See, he sent these Jewish elders to ask Jesus to come to him. But the more he thought about that, the more uncomfortable he became. Because if they came to him, that meant that this Jesus, this prophet, this rabbi was going to be coming under his roof. And he'd heard about Jesus. People had told him a little bit about him. He's not just one who can work miracles. People say that he's not just a mere man or a mere prophet. People say that he's the Son of God. In fact, he said of himself before Abraham was born, I am. In fact, when he casts out demons, the demons say, We know who you are, the Holy One of God. So he was a prophet, but he was more than that. He was the Son of the living God. He was holy. And they would tell him, and if you watch his life, it backs it up. He loves God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and his neighbor is himself. He goes about doing good and healing all who are oppressed of the devil. He spends his entire life ministering to God and ministering to others. He's a holy man. And the more he thought about that holy man coming under his roof, the more and more uncomfortable he got. And he said, I'm not worthy for that. There must have been a sense of sin that was striking home to his conscience, that he was a sinner. And he had no business being in the presence of this holy Son of God. There was a sense of shame, a sense of personal unworthiness. He had a broken and contrite heart. I'm not worthy for you to come, Jesus. Don't come. I, I'm not worthy for you to come under this roof, and I'm not worthy to come to you. Just say the word, that's good enough, and my servant will be healed. So what do we learn about this man? He was humble. He was humble. He was broken and contrite and penitent and had this lowly sense of his position before Jesus Christ. Folks, how do we grow in humility? Because humility is a beautiful thing in a child of God. How do we grow in that? I believe we grow in it the more we see our own personal insufficiency as contrasted with the all-sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Or to put it in another way, when we see our own sinfulness as contrasted with the holiness of Jesus, the more you really see that, the more humble you become. You don't have to try to make yourself humble. It just happens automatically if you have a glimpse of His holiness and His sufficiency and your utter unworthiness and your insufficiency. A man by the name of A.T. Pearson was writing the biography of George Mueller. And he makes this statement in the book. Nothing is more marked in George Mueller to the very day of his death than this, that he so looked to God that he felt himself to be nothing in God, everything. Now, if you see yourself as nothing 
and God is everything, you will be a humble man. You won't have to try to make yourself humble. You will be humble. So this man not only had a great love for his slave and a great love for the Jewish nation, he also had a great sense of humility as God opened to him his own unworthiness and his sin and his shame before him. But then the thing that really caused Jesus to marvel is this third thing, his great faith. Look at verse 7. Excuse me, verse 8. At the end of verse 7, it says, Just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, Go, and he goes. And to another, Come, and he comes. And to my slave, Do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him, and turned and said to the crowd that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. Two times in Scripture, Jesus speaks about someone who had great faith. It's this one. Can anybody think of who the other one is? Do you know? It's the Syrophoenician woman in Matthew chapter 15 who had a daughter who was cruelly demon-possessed and she was saying, Lord, even the dogs get to eat the crumbs that fall from the table. And Jesus said, I've seen a woman with great faith today. So twice. What's interesting about that is that both of them are Gentiles. Isn't that interesting? One was a man, one was a woman. As if Jesus is trying to say, the way of great faith is open to anyone. You can be a man, you can be a woman, you can be from any tribe, people, tongue, and nation on the earth. And you can possess great faith, just like the Syrophoenician woman, and just like this Roman centurion. Now look at verse 7, the very end of that. He says, But just say the word, and my servant will be healed. Why did Jesus, or why did the centurion come to the conclusion that Jesus didn't have to come to his house, but he just could say the word and the, that healing would follow? Verse 8, he tells us why. It's because I also am a man placed under authority. He was a centurion, but he was under the authority of others above him, wasn't he? And so if he were to say to one of his soldiers, go, go to this place, that man would immediately go. If he said to another soldier, come, he would immediately come. If he told his slave, do this particular task for me, the servant would do it immediately. And he recognized that Jesus was in a similar position to him. The centurion was under authority, so he possessed authority. And he recognized that Jesus was under the authority of God. So he possessed the authority of God. It's kind of like when you're driving up to an intersection and all the lights are red and you've got these people directing traffic, it doesn't matter if, if it's a 19-year-old little a kid who's just graduated from the police academy, if he's holding up that sign that says stop or if he's going like this, you stop, don't you? Because if you run that red light, all the authority of the United States government backs him up to, <laughs> to do whatever's necessary to draw you into line. So... 
what he's saying is that if you are under authority, you possess authority. And I recognize, Jesus, that you're under God's authority, so you possess God's authority. So I know that just like I can tell my soldiers to do this or do that, and all I have to do is say it, and it's done. I know that you can do the very same thing. And if you were to tell this disease to be banished, it would go. If you tell this paralysis to leave, it'll be gone. And so he says there in verse 9 that Jesus marveled. And we read over in Matthew chapter 8, verse 10, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. Now notice here, a couple of things. He hadn't found this great faith with anybody in Israel. No Jews. He'd been up and down Palestine, hadn't he? He'd been to Jerusalem. He'd been to Bethlehem. He'd been to Judea. He'd been to Capernaum and Canaan, all these other villages and towns. And he'd watched all kinds of Jewish people. And he said, I haven't found anyone like this man amongst all the Jewish people. But I found it here. And notice the little word found. I haven't found it. What does that imply? He's looking for it. Jesus is on the look. He's on the search for great faith. I think he's on the search today. He's looking from heaven. Where are my people that possess great faith? Where are they? Can they be found? What's the result? Matthew 8.13 makes it specific. Go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed that very moment. So the result of his great faith was an instantaneous healing. Jesus didn't have to come. He didn't have to come under his roof. He didn't have to lay hands on him. He just spoke the word and he was healed that very moment. Now where did this centurion, this Gentile, come up with this great faith? Well, we know from Ephesians 2 that faith is a gift of God. God grants faith. We also know from Romans chapter 10 that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So it's my conviction that somebody has been talking to this centurion. How else in the world is he going to believe like this, right? Someone's been telling him about Jesus. I wish I knew who it was. Wouldn't you like to know who was witnessing to the centurion? I have a hunch, and this is all it is, it's just a hunch, but I think it's a pretty good hunch, that one of the people that has talked to this centurion was the royal official in John chapter 4. Both of them lived very close to Capernaum. Both of them were in government service. The royal official in John chapter 4 had a son who was very sick, and Jesus healed him with a word from a distance. And so it's my hunch that this guy somehow got connected to the centurion. They probably knew each other since they're both in government service. And he told him about Jesus healing his son from a distance. And that's why this man says, hey, you don't even have to come under my roof. I know what you can do. I've heard about what you can do. You just say the word and it'll be done. So faith had been birthed in his heart as other people had told him about the miracles. Perhaps he'd even been on an occasion to hear Jesus preach and seen some of his mighty works. So let's draw all of this down to some application for us. It seems like the Holy Spirit wants us to learn something from this centurion that we can apply to our lives. Are you, am I, 
a person that Jesus would marvel at if we were living at the time he was on the earth? Do we possess great love, great humility, or great faith? Let's think about love for a minute. Galatians 5.6 says, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What does mean something? But faith working through love. There it is. We could change that to say, For in Christ Jesus neither baptism nor not being baptized means anything, ultimately. But this is what really matters Faith working through love. Now you can tell me you have faith, but if you have love, you could be like the guy we talked about last week who said, Lord, Lord, and didn't do what Jesus said. Love is the evidence that faith exists within your life. A true and living faith will result in love, love to other people. And love is evidenced most often by giving. For God so loved the world that he gave. So, it, when you want to love somebody, just start thinking about, okay, how can I give to this person? What do I have that that person needs? Is it my time? Is it my attention? Is it my energies? Is it my money? Is it my possessions? See, if you love somebody, you're going to be a giver. Giving's going to flow out of your life to that particular person. And we're never more like Jesus than when we're giving. Jesus was a giver. He gave it all, didn't he? He gave his life. So the, the people that I know in my life that are more, most Christ-like are people that are givers. You look at them and they're, they're constantly looking for ways to give to give of whatever they need to give. I would encourage you this week to look for somebody who's needy and become a giver. Learn from the centurion's good example. He gave to his slave. He gave to the Jewish people. The Holy Spirit seems to be spotlighting that about him. Let's learn to follow in his steps. Ultimately, we're following in the steps of Jesus Christ who gave everything he had. He was rich, yet for our sake, he became poor that through his poverty we might become rich. When a person's a giver, it's an attractive thing. I think it can be used of God to lead people to Christ. Now, secondly, let's think about his humility for a minute. Are you a person of great humility? And if you raise your hand and said, yep, that's me, you're probably not. <laughs> the people that are most humble are probably the least likely to say that they are. It reminds me of a story of a pastor named Harry Ironside. Anybody ever heard that name before? Harry Ironside? He was the pastor of Moody Church back in the 30s and 40s. And um, he was troubled by the fact that he didn't have more humility in his life. And he was talking to an older brother in the Lord about it. And he said, what should I do? I want to have more humility. And this brother says, okay, I've got an idea for you. Uh, make a sandwich board with a plan of salvation, put it over your neck, and walk through the streets of Chicago for a day. And you'll become a humble person if you do that. So he said, okay, what have I got to lose? So he did it. He put it on the sandwich board. He walked through the streets of Chicago. And it was a very humiliating experience. You know, people were saying all kinds of rude things to him as he's walking through the streets. And he got back home. He took off the sandwich board. And he said, you know, I bet there's not another person in Chicago who would have done what I did today. 
And so he was becoming proud of how humble he was. And isn't that like us? We, we, we can become self-righteous and proud of our humility. So in order to be humble, we need to again go to Christ because Christ is the epitome of humility. The Bible says of him, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself and was made in the appearance of man. And when he was found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself yet further to the point of death, even death on a cross. So the closer we get to Jesus, the more God forms us into the image of Jesus, the more loving we're going to be, which means more giving we're going to be, and the more humble we will be, because his humility will begin to shine through us. God will be everything, and we'll just count ourselves as nothing in his sight. And again, humility is a very attractive Christian virtue. Love and humility can be an awesome thing to attract people to the God that we profess to love. And then thirdly, think about his great faith for a minute. He had absolute confidence that all Jesus had to do was speak the word and his servant would be healed. There wasn't any doubt. Just speak the word. I know it's going to happen. And I wonder, when we are faced with a great trial, and it happens often, doesn't it, that we go through trials, where's our faith? Can we still say with absolute confidence that God is working all things together for my good. I know it, even though I'm suffering, even though I don't like this trial, I know God is using it for my good and for His glory. I have no doubt about that whatsoever. And what's more, I know that He hasn't forsaken me. I know that He's still with me, that He'll never leave me, never desert me, never forsake me, that He's with me and He loves me, even though this trial might Scream to me the opposite, that he's forsaken me. I don't believe that. I believe God's word. I believe that he loves me and that this trial is for my good and ultimately will be for God's glory. Where is your faith when it comes to the trials that God puts you in? There's a statement made by Hudson Taylor that has become famous. Hudson Taylor, the great missionary of China, would make this statement over and over. All God's giants have been weak men who did great things for God because they reckoned on God being with them. Don't you love that? They just knew. They reckoned. God is with me. Hey, I'm weak in myself. Who am I to try to do this thing for God? But God is with me. And if God is with me, it doesn't matter how weak I am because he's omnipotent. If omnipotence joins himself to utter weakness, who cares about the utter weakness? Omnipotence rules every time. So we need to have great faith in a great sovereign, omnipotent God. When you're going through the storm or through the fire or through the flood, trust him. Trust him. Don't let go. Don't doubt God's word in the dark when he's shown you things in the light. So let me just ask you again, are you a person of love and humility and faith such that Jesus might marvel at you if he and you lived at the same time on the earth? Wouldn't that be a great thing if the Lord would marvel at your faith? Let's ask him to do that in our hearts, to develop these things. So Lord, we do come to you and we pray that you would develop greater love. Lord, I know that we're selfish by nature. We think of ourselves far too much. 
We ask, Lord, that you would make us more like Jesus. Lord, make us into givers. I pray you'd make us generous. We pray that we might have the character of Christ to shine through us. Lord, we pray that we would see ourselves as we really are. Next to you, Lord, we're nothing. <laughs> but we have such a great, great God. So open up our eyes to your greatness and to our littleness. And Lord, we pray that you would increase our faith. Lord, let us not doubt when it comes to those times when we need to hold on to the rock. Lord, give us confidence, utter confidence, that you will see us through, that you're doing something behind the scenes that we can't understand, but we know that it will all be revealed one day. So Lord, give us great faith, greater faith. And Lord, we pray these things through Jesus Christ. Amen.